Welcome to a special segment of the SWW show. It's me, AJ. It's time for an interview here with Howard from Muse Games, makers of Ember. A uh, the the ten second pitch is a, an Uber for firefighters. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that that's the perfect like we've totally reached the in the in the Ember universe. We've gone fully into the, there's a service for everything. Yeah, I think that, that is pretty much the uh, the implication. Yeah, I got a chance to hop into the alpha, and I must say the uh, the interface and like the the comments that pop up after you finish a job is like perfect, just that kind of meta internet humor of how people review things on everything <laughs> yeah yeah um we definitely tried to uh to have everything uh kind of themed around that um you know just the, the whole like app uh you know gig economy app review uh type thing so yeah the, the whole i mean i guess i'm, I'm glad you, you find it that way um we definitely try to theme everything uh, around that yeah and it it works perfectly like especially for you know these level based games like creating an interface that gets you from point A to point B but in in world is always a struggle right. that a lot of games have and like ember does it well um the new cook serve delicious does it really well um but there are very few games that i can think of that are like oh yeah it's a level-based game that's got a level select, but there's an in-universe, you know, reason for the level select. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, it's definitely trying to tie uh, world progression and how we gauge, um, you know, player performance for, you know, just I guess beating uh, like each of the missions and then tie it to, you know, this whole like uh, client review theme. Um, so yeah, it did. It it worked out. Um, and uh, you know, for some of the like, if I don't know if you got to try, um, you know, kind of the bo- bonus mission type uh, or the different game modes. Um, and they're kind of like they're themed as like you know bonus, like your bonus star or bonus flame. Um, and uh, you know, in the it just is a world progression. Like so, you know, if you uh, beat them, uh, you can actually get a, like an extra star that you know goes towards your your uh, cumulative total for your world progression so yeah cool and it's not a it's not a spoiler because it's like one of the first things that happened it's like the third or fourth level that is in the game your uh canadian invaders are hilarious <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh the accent was nailed perfectly and just like oh well you guys think you're big and tough no we've got our like the if we go back to the Uber comparison, like it's Uber and Lyft, but the difference is Lyft isn't from Canada, but like the, it's a competing, <laughs> like, Hey, we can do this too. And just that, that first interaction is hilarious with them. And uh, it, it's, it's really fun when you can, you know, when people can make the baddies 
fun in universe um because otherwise they're like oh they're a big bad and a lot of people see big bads as like oh okay they're just there they don't necessarily connect with the character and even though they're not really like characters it's just a voice you still connect to it because it's like oh this guy's trying to do this and it's funny and they kind of put you in a situation of like oh you know we kind of made a false claim on the app and but now you have to <laughs> escape and it's definitely a fun a fun introduction yeah and i think one of the i mean later on when you get to kind of the boss um you know the just kind of the the direct uh, boss confrontation um we definitely try to look at different ways where we hide the different mechanics that you will um get to experience throughout the you know, really now, like the first uh, chapter or the first district of the game, um, and to kind of reintroduce them in different ways uh, in the boss fight, right? But I think another um, consideration is really kind of like what you said, it is to see if you can find different ways to like structure that engagement without just kind of the traditional expectational model of just like, okay, let's just shoot it until it's dead. Um, right, because the whole, really, the whole core of Ember, um, you know, it's firefighting. So it's like first-person shooting, right? But you don't really get to kill anything, at least not directly. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's a first-person of... shooter where you're not shooting bullets, and the target that you're shooting at isn't a an animate object. It's all like. I guess fire in a way is animate, but it's, it's for the most part stationary and yeah, you're, you're shoot quote unquote shooting water at fire. Like it doesn't sound fun. It's because like, like work simulators are always the type of games that people are like, Oh, I don't really want to do that. Like it sounds interesting, (laughs) but you know, when it gets down to it, like, do I really want to drive a forklift around? No. Do I really want to drive a semi around? For me, yes, because I find the truck simulator games awesome. But to have, like, the interaction of, okay, it's not just that. It's you're running around saving oblivious people on their phones. You're uh, trying to bounce people off trampolines to land them in uh, mattresses. Um you're trying to yeet little girls off roofs to make sure they get to the rescue zone, um, all while you're an old lady. Definitely, I, I think um, the part of what we wanted, like the, the the kind of feeling, right, the engagement, the the um, or the experience that we want players to have is really more of this frantic, hectic, um, you know, just like you rush into a burning building and you know all kinds of stuff which has happened. Uh, real time you have to like you know make quick decision almost like time management like where you have to to basically like manage different things and do different things and uh it's meant to be you know more hectic and so the you know actual firefighting there is that component but a lot of it you know so we, we actually um early on ember we actually interview some you know firefighters actual real life firefighters just to kind of understand the nuance of like firefighting and what they do. And a lot of what they do is like really, really awesome, right? But it's also very um, compartmentalized. It's very like, 
you know, they, they follow like pretty, you know, strict protocol and, you know, for obvious reasons, right? Like, but, um, you know, it's really more, um, yeah, I mean, definitely it's, it's, it's actually more like regimented and it's more like step-by-step. Step. A lot of, a lot of like, you know, a lot of what they do is it's um, like going to the burning building is kind of the less, the last step, you know, like there was a lot of like um, work that they do around the building, um, you know, to create ventilation, to create like, you know, passages and, you know, remove obstructions and whatnot that, you know, it's really cool, but it would have been a different feeling. And so in order to kind of like peel away that and just get to the arcadey, like, you know, engagement of it, um, in a way, we kind of have to find a way to suspend disbelief. Um, and, you know, which means like, you know, sort of remove a layer of realism. And um, so that's in part why, you know, it's themed this way. But I think also just because, you know, we wanted to make a state, you know, kind of a, to have the game have a message and to um, find a way where we could actually deliver satire without beating, you know, people over the head with it. Um, so we kind of went in this, like this, you know, humorous, you know, satirical, comedic, uh, you know, making fun of the gig economy uh, direction. Yeah. And it, you guys nail that perfectly. Just like, the the introduction of the game like oh yeah you're gonna go find the trainer for this and he's <laughs> around back on his phone and like everybody you interact with is on their phone which i guess is real <laughs> but i would in a way i want the uh the like free cam i want to be able to free cam some levels after i'm done just to see this frantic old lady running around spraying water all over the building running up, grabbing somebody, putting them over her shoulder, jumping out of a window, hitting the trampoline a couple times, going up on top, like some of the stuff that I had to do, not had, but ended up doing. Um, yeah, that's that's actually really cool. I mean, yeah. we actually have free cam as, so we have all these like free cam and camera controls um, already built. Um, and right now, like if you, uh, go through our uh, Twitter feed. There's some like you know level flythroughs, and you know that's kind of how we recorded the flythroughs. Um, and right now it's just sort of you know us using it as a almost like a, as a debug tool. Um, but it will be cool you know later on down the road when we you know essentially could introduce it as a, a spectator functionality. That would be pretty cool. Get the uh, how super hot used to do it where like everything was slow, but then at the end of the level they play it back at you know, quote, real speed. But being able to see just this frantic character, for me, it was an old lady. You know, you can change your character, it looks like, down the road, but just this frantic lady running around with a detached fire hose, which I think makes it even funnier. <laughs> just the idea of this lady with not a magic, necessarily, fire hose, because it does run out of water, but just the, the nozzle of a fire hose like the mental image of that is a lady that just lost her marbles and is running around with a fire nozzle, but instead she's spraying water all over the place and saving people. And she's somehow a superhuman because she can just pick up people with one hand and run around and just chop with a fire ax. And it's, uh, it's definitely a fun, like you hop into the game and you're going to have fun. And the tutorial is great. 
it explains everything perfectly. Um, and then you're you're given a couple levels and you know given the chance to explore and you can go back and redo levels. So I found like for me, if I didn't get the five star right away, I'd just play through, find what everything I needed. And then like take the next two or three attempts and figure out, okay, I need to go find the breaker so I can turn off the power or I need to make sure I go get this person because they start on fire or things like that. And I noticed on your guys' discord, like there's a speed running, you know, side of this, which I'm going to just greatly enjoy watching people speed run this game because you know, given the chance to play it, I'm like, okay, there's, I guess, a way that you can do this fast, but there's also, like, you know, it gives you the ability to, okay, you can basically put the entire house out if you want, and then do everything. Yep, um, there are definitely multiple ways to approach uh, the different levels. I mean, B-Run will be interesting. I mean, right now, the earlier levels um that you got to play um there i mean i guess the difference um you know the variance or the difference between like say you know someone you know regular person running through it and someone who's really fast maybe like may not be as drastic but I mean, it would be really interesting to see you know how people approach some of the later levels which are you know significantly more complex um and you know, to speed run through those and see like what people do with them, like what tools they use and what tools they bring. Uh, I think it would be pretty fascinating, at least for me. Yeah, seeing how like, okay, how does somebody that is very good at this game compartmentalize, okay, I need to get this person, then this person, then this person. And that strategy, I think is actually a really fun way to watch. Um, like a lot of speedrunners in a way like break the game either through exploiting something or something like that. But it gives you an idea of like, okay, this is how the system works. And then you can use that and go like, okay, these interactions, you can speed up by doing this. Or in Ember, you can, you know, you basically, you're not required to get upgrades, but being able to break stuff with a fire axe while carrying somebody is a very useful upgrade. It's pretty expensive, could get i think the fire extinguisher for the same price but you know it's one of those okay do you want the ability to break windows while carrying somebody or do you want the fire extinguisher like your guys's path of okay you have a limited loadout and you know it gives you the idea of like okay i want to choose the path of basically just get in get the people out and go or I want to put the whole house out. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I always like games that give the the option of, even though it doesn't seem like there's paths, like the path of for Ember, you know, uh, being able to shoot water a long distance and very accurately. So you could do it from across the room because maybe there's electricity and you need to find the source, but you want to put the fire out. Or there's the path of uh, water grenades, just running in and let them go. Or there's the the path of, okay, find 
everything that you can or find the cash piles, rescue all the furniture, like get those tips. Yeah. And there will be a game mode specifically for that. <laughs> well, yeah. I, uh, I think I got a tip on the first level and then just didn't care. I was like, okay, I'm just rescuing all the people. And you know, if, if money ends up becoming a thing, I'll go back and rescue some furniture. But other than that, people, your house is on fire. I'm getting you out. I'm not going back for your stuff. You only tipped me like five bucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, we've seen so far just like, you know, people approaching the game pretty differently. Some people are just like, yeah, we're just going to get strictly get the, uh, the people out and some people do want to take time and you know do other things or just mess around um so yeah it's it's kind of satisfying uh just to see, so far just to see you know that there are different approaches to you know to a mission and you know people uh really i mean part of the uh, kind of our design philosophy is to um really allow for as much possible like as much pos- of a possibility as possible um, so, you know, if you want to take an axe and hack off the switch and, you know, you want to, um, you know, toss your client off of a balcony, you know, onto a trampoline, like there is just like a lot of, I mean, in a way you can do maybe not everything that you want to do, but like a lot of things that, you know, you uh, could think of doing. So um, I think earlier part of the, the kind of the design philosophy almost it's just well hey what uh is someone supposed to do that well yeah we're gonna make it happen yeah the uh the freedom of there's a lot of stuff that you're like oh you can actually do that like bouncing people off trampolines you know if you were good enough you could be at the top of the building and bounce them down floors and into rescue zone or you could be like me and uh, throw them off the balcony and they land just in front of the fence and then uh, think that you can get some more distance if you're higher, thinking of physics, and instead you kill two people with, I guess, one stone. (laughs) Uh, The death message is hilarious. Like, oh, they didn't make it this time. Guess you'll have to do better next time. It's such a, like, well, I guess, you know, how, how in a world where... You know, it, you're being very satirical with the gig economy. How do you like a lot of these apps? Their their failure messages are something similar. They're a <laughs> yeah. oh, I guess the app crashed. So, guess you didn't get paid for the past three trips that you gave, or stuff like that. And to have that message of like, oh, I guess they didn't make it, and then just two skeletons laying on the ground next to each other. I'm like, all right really funny i have to start this over because i needed one of those people to make it um yeah it's just you guys have nailed the the humor this the satirical aspect of this to a t the art style is amazing um everybody go wishlist this on steam um and it comes out the the end of this month correct yeah uh it comes out on the 21st uh in, 21st. into uh into early access so yeah, people, it's it'll be up on Steam. Again, it's 
currently on the store, so you can add it to your wish list. Um, and it goes live the 21st. Yes, it'll be early access, but honestly, what game isn't at this point? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we live in a world of live games, right? So, like, every game is early access. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point. I mean, so we, you know, the game is not, you know, there, we're, so we have a lot more content and a lot more um, mechanics and, you know, systems and features that we wanted to add. Um, so there's a bigger scope that we have in mind. Um, and we'll obviously continue to, to, you know, just keep adding to the game. I think early access, at least what we're hoping for, is just, you know, get a lot of uh, feedback. Just because I think, you know, with the demo, which is, it's been great, um, people have been, like, trying uh, the demo uh, and they've been giving us a lot of feedback. Um, but for some of the, the later um, levels and some of the new stuff that we're adding, we're definitely going to continue to need player feedback. Um, and a lot of times we just get, like, really cool ideas, right, that we want to implement from players. So, like, we want that to continue. Um, so I think a lot of early access is just, um, you know, hopefully having players to give players a form to give us feedback and uh for us to keep iterating on the game um and yeah we actually anticipate to be in early access for oh you know at least nine months so we're thinking like nine to twelve months um and release it release the full game um uh sometime in may of next year um and so if people get the game now um we'll you know they can just expect uh, us to you know give them updates add new content for them uh well pretty much for free so yeah i mean the best time to get into a a game at this point is right when it releases because almost every game now is either some form of early access or it's a live game so they constantly get updated and yeah why not hop in you know when it's 20 bucks we'll say instead of potentially 40 next year when it releases and it's a full game like yes the business side of that for from your point of view isn't great because you're losing out on a full sale but you have people that are willing to take a risk and well not i mean a lot of people are in the position right now of being able to take a ton of risks this is a game that i don't think it's a risk to when this releases uh go out and purchase it this is a this isn't a early access because it barely works this is a early access it works it's they're just going to add some stuff to it it's it's pretty darn close to a finished game right now i can tell you that much oh thanks yeah um i think we definitely want to get the game in in you know obviously as good of a shape as you know, we humanly possibly can. Um, you know, it's not probably not completely bug free, um, but generally it's pretty playable. Um, it should be pretty stable. Um, I think the yeah, I mean, I think I feel like if we, you know, charge people money, we're like really any um, any dollar amount, any money, and the game is like broken, it's not playable. Uh, then it just I, I I don't feel like you know we're doing the right thing here. I mean, I, I don't think that's like for us anyway like ethically acceptable so uh we definitely want to make sure that the game is like really playable and people have fun with it um and we'll just keep adding maybe like maybe not as 
you know, for as as long of a duration, um, you know, or or as much of a total playtime as like people would want for a full, fully like you know, officially released game. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the goal for us is definitely just keep adding content um, until we get to like you know, a full scope, a full vision. Um, so yeah. Well, Howard, I will tell you this: I am looking forward to your guys's early access release later in the month. Uh, yeah, everyone, go check out Ember on Steam. Um, if you're curious, it is just it's Ember without the second E. It's it's, yeah. <laughs> it's totally the uh, the gig economy app of hey, we're gonna take a vowel out. Yeah, exactly. So, Howard, it was great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the soon. Awesome! Thanks so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to, I'm hoping, the tail end of these quarantine edition episodes, but, like, really while in quarantine for a long, long time, it feels like. Anyway, I'm Mike. Today with me, a special guest. So it could be some of your name and the game we're here to talk about. Sure. Patrick Donahue, and the game is Life Hutch VR. Yeah, so, so Patrick, immediately, as we were kind of talking before, too, I feel, just to get a bit of ideas, we'll get into what is Life Hutch VR. Um, you you have a we'll call it a very seasoned background in in the entertainment industry. Do you mind going over like at least to getting like top level kind of like your background kind of going into this game? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, uh, thank you for calling me seasoned. I'll I'll take that as a as a compliment. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's uh, the short version of my background is I started as a filmmaker, uh, worked on various commercials, music videos, low budget, you know, features that no one's ever seen, and then ended up in computer animation and ultimately in sort of software development. Um, worked in in the television industry for a long time. Uh, won three or four Emmys and got a bunch of patents. Uh, so I'm sort of this weird, you know, sort of oddball, sort of hybrid, like probably a lot of people in the game industry where I've got a very creative side, graphic design, 3D animation, but also pretty tech side, uh, which is sort of, you know, reflected in the Emmys and the patents. Um, but ultimately was, was an executive at a cable company uh, in charge of software development for mobile applications, streaming video, how you buy movies on TV, uh, and user experience and design and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was a really good ride and not a logical sort of progression to video games, you know, really, other than I'm a huge gamer, always have been. And, uh, you know, again, just as a filmmaker, I sort of combined all my love of great design and great storytelling and action and adventure and, and, at this point in my career, I thought, I want to make a game. I want to do something really interesting and cool and unusual. So so that was kind of how I ended up, you know, where I am today. So so you wanted to just make a game. So just to clarify, is this like the first big game you've made as a commercial developer then? Or have you kind of poked at stuff in the back? Yeah, no, this is my first uh, game. I mean, gosh, you know, I built... Uh, not me personally, but my team and I built some of the very early games that you could play on your television with your cable set-top box. You know, pretty simple stuff that, uh, you know, card games and checkers and backgammon and things like that. So have done game services like that. Uh, but for me as an individual and with my company, uh, yeah, this is our first commercial title uh, where we, we really just decided we wanted to build something beyond sort of the prototyping and, and things that we all do, uh, build something, deploy it, 
you know, go through that whole process on Steam and, and some of the other stores. So yeah, this is our our first real title. Perfect. So let's 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 jump into it then. Can you give? Let's start there. And what is your elevator pitch when I meet you in in the elevator at GDC for thirty seconds? What is LifeHutch <laughs> VR? Yeah. So LifeHutch VR is a sort of unusual hybrid of a cinematic linear story and a video game. And it's takes the best of both in terms of immersiveness uh, and, and feeling like you're truly in the story, but also in a, in a, in a way that the story has a logical progression and has a, an ending and it has a, and it has a sort of story arc and ends with a very clear conclusion and, and, and that's it. So, so it sort of takes the best of storytelling, but also adds the interactivity that gamers sort of, you know, obviously love and, and, and sort of, you know, um, demand. Okay. So, so obviously I think this talking to you immediately and then this kind of pitch immediately, obviously this, this is very heavy on your film background just because logistically I'm curious For... on, on the immediate side of it. Why did you choose to make this? Because I think you still are kind of selling it as a game, and it still feels like fundamentally it is a game first, but with like very heavy like story elements and entertainment and that aspect elements. Why make it a game versus more of a pure interactive film, as we've seen like with early VR stuff, for example? Yeah, you know, I mean, I know you you do development as well, and and you understand this space. So you know, we started this project three years ago, which in some ways doesn't seem like a long time ago, but in obviously the technology and game space, that's like a hundred years. So, you know, when I started the conceptualization, which probably goes back more than three years, um, you know, VR was much less sophisticated, much less sort of robust. It was a very much a nascent technology. Right. And so, so, uh, you know, lots of lessons learned in this project. And, and one of the lessons I learned here is that, you know, there is a time to market factor where things just will if you don't get it done fast enough they're they're going to start to look you know a little dated right so uh in the vr space when we first started this you know a lot of the conventions that you see now that have i mean i think uh half-life phallix is by far the best you know vr experience ever created um you look at just the sophisticated interaction models and the way that they've solved a lot of problems of how do you grab things and move with things and walk and you know that stuff is it's been happening in real time, right? So being, you know, relatively early to the space, we had to really figure out with not a lot to work with, you know, how do you tell a story uh, using VR and how do you, you know, just the simple mechanics, again, stuff we've all been trying to figure out, how do you move, you know, how do you walk, how do you open doors, how do you interact with things? And, uh, and, and so that was, I think, the challenge from the very beginning is, you know, take a story that you want to tell that has, again, a very, clear beginning middle and end and how do you allow enough interaction into that so that it's fun and engaging and you truly feel like you have some control but ultimately there's only one ending right i mean ultimately you have to go through a series of steps you have to hit a certain series of story points and then ta-da conclusion you know and and sort of that's you know the big the big finish right so um that's been really i think the challenge with vr is how do you how do you do that um you know, you've probably seen 360 videos uh, where, you know, and I shoot a lot of that being a former cinematographer, and it's kind of amazing. I, I'm very lucky. I've traveled the world. I've gone to some pretty amazing places like, 
you know, uh, exploring this, the streets of uh, Pripyat and Chernobyl and taking incredible 360 videos. And that's an amazing sort of way to capture that. But, uh, but you can't interact with 360 videos. So as cool as it is to stand there in the middle of a abandoned, you know, radioactive city in 360 video, that's all I can do, right? I can look around, right? So, so I think you need that VR component, you know, the way we do with, with game engines to allow people to really, truly step into it and, and touch it and feel it. But that's a very interesting, I think, I think way to describe all that. And, and I've done a lot with 360, like, videos and pictures, too, and immediately it's, it's always interesting to explain to people that it, because they go into these experiences being like, what do you mean? It's all 3D, it's all there. And I go, no, no, it's it's really not all there. Like, it's it's an infinite distance from you. You just don't realize it. And that's why when people walk around in those, they really go, oof. Right. Yeah, it's cool when you stand right there, and it is you know pretty amazing. But I felt it somewhat limiting as a uh, as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, and 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 you know I lo- again as a as a more of a just a sort of a to capture it. It's it's amazing way to say, look, you can experience what I did, you know, walking again through the streets of of Chernobyl, but well, actually not walking through the streets, but standing, right? Because you can't walk. And so I love it from that perspective. But I really like what you can do with VR because you can add that true level of interaction and immersiveness that's uh i just don't think you can do any any other way really yeah no that makes sense so so as we're talking about storytelling i'm curious so one of the things about this game is you are you are in correct me if i'm wrong the world that another like right like a, an old sci-fi writer wrote can you kind yeah. of talk about that yeah, for sure. So, so again, being seasoned quote unquote um, you know, I, I when I started this project, you know, and again, early days of VR, one of the things about VR was walking and locomotion and everything was sort of like not really figured out. And it was sort of like, okay, how do we do this in a way that's interesting? And so as I started developing, I originally started developing uh, for uh, actually uh, Google Cardboard and uh, Gear VR and those types of things, which are even more limited. And I thought, I need a story that doesn't require a person to like, walk around and and because that's hard and it's sort of clunky and and not great and and so i spent a lot of time just either writing stories looking at comic books and and different properties that i thought might have something really cool and i i landed on this story that i had actually read probably when i was like 14 or 15 years old and it's a short story it was actually written in 1956 uh it's a short story written by a, a pretty famous uh, science fiction writer by the name of Harlan Ellison. And uh, he actually passed away during the the production. So unfortunately, I never got to show it to him. But um, he's probably most, he's written a lot of stories, but he's probably most famous for, he wrote an episode of the original Star Trek. uh, I believe it's called City on the Edge of Forever, which uh, I think won an Emmy. Um, so he goes back a long time and, uh, very influential writer, pretty edgy, um, apparently a bit of a curmudgeon. I never met him, but, uh, pretty tough dude and, uh, but a great writer and, and his stuff. Again, this is a story written in 19, I think 56, uh, pretty edgy stuff for, for 1956. Um, and, and he actually had a series of stories in this sci-fi universe that, that Life Hutch takes place in. There's a, series of probably 10 or 12 stories uh that really the sort of the center piece of it is mankind say 100 to 200 years ago that's sort of near future sort of sci-fi reality uh suddenly 
is confronted with an alien race uh, that just sort of, you know, they bump into each other out in space and immediately just start fighting and killing each other and, you know, doing terrible things to each other. Um, and that was really inspired by the Vietnam War and sort of the just the, the sense of sort of cruelty of, of Vietnam. And so he wrote these stories about these two people that really didn't even know why they were fighting, two, two races, right? They, they didn't know why they were fighting. They didn't really know why they hated each other, but it was kind of too late. And so they just doubled down on it. Um, and there's a couple of really touching, poignant stories in the series that really talk about just sort of the senselessness of, of the violence and, and, uh, and those types of things. Uh, so Life Watch VR is, gosh, maybe a 10, 12-page story that is one of the stories in this um, in the series that he wrote. Um, and it's about a, a you know, a, a, a guy, just a regular guy who happens to be a fighter pilot um, and, and, goes through a series of things. I won't tell too much because I, I want people to try it out for themselves, but he's, he's going through a series of challenges ultimately to survive. Right. And, and that's kind of the core thread that runs through the whole story, which I don't think I fully understood until I got into writing the script was ultimately this story is about the ingenuity of man and his incredible desire to survive and figure things out and how we are just sort of fundamentally wired at, at our sort of core genetic level to figure out how to not die basically. And, uh, and so the whole, this whole sort of story progresses as he sort of is constantly being challenged with things that are, that either want to kill him or, or will kill him uh, through one means or another. And, 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 and really that's, that's really what, uh, I think the main theme of the story is, is that the strength of the sort of human condition uh, to just want to continue. So I'm curious, obviously when this was written, it wasn't written for interactivity or for virtuality or any of these fun technologies you've tied into it. How much right. when writing this, do you take, did you go for like a literal interpretation of the story or did you make you want to make sure more broadly you had the themes and the fundamental ideas there while making it modernized for this interactivity? <laughs> You know, it's interesting. So um, a little bit of both. I mean, in some ways I was very um, accurate in terms of the story structure, in terms of scene by scene. I follow his basic story arc almost exactly um, because, honestly, I thought it was great the way it was and it really didn't need any change. Uh, you know, I think there was also a part of me that I had hoped and assumed that I would ultimately, uh, he would see it and I would show it to him. And, and I was in the back of my mind was always this little bit of a trepidation of like, geez, I really don't want him to hate this. So I was sort of like, part of me was like, don't mess with this too much because he's known for being, you know, like I said, a bit prickly uh, and litigious, quite frankly. But uh, so I was very aware of that. And truthfully, I didn't feel like it needed a lot of changes. You know, that being said, so the basic story arc is what it is. And it's, it's, it is very consistent with the original story. Uh, I even use certain lines of dialogue that he wrote because again, they were just, they were right. They were good. Um, you know, and you probably know this from game development. And I think this is particularly true of, of uh, VR is, there's, it's hard to move the story uh, forward in certain ways without dialogue and conversation. Well, the vast majority of this game is one guy by himself. So how do you do that, right? And, and that was kind of a big challenge for me. And, and most of the story actually is this guy having a conversation with himself in his head. You know, he's sort of, uh, what do I do? How do I do this? Oh, my God, this is terrible, whatever. And um, I just couldn't figure out a way to, like, have that sort of internal dialogue that we all have in a game and have it not be like super 
odd and confusing. Um, so, so one of the things I did was I invented a character, uh, sort of like, I guess, since I've just been replaying Halo, uh, sort of like uh, Cortana, you know, just the, the computer voice in your head, right, just sort of helped you solve problems. So I invented this character called Angel, which is really just a, a computerized uh, assistant. And she kind of says, do this, go here, you know, this is what's going on. So that is just as a story device became a really easy way to kind of help the players understand what's going on. Um, I think the other major change I made was there was a bit, I felt uh, there was a, there was a plot point that was not clear in the story, which I don't want to give away too much, but there's a robot that is this, this sort of very menacing robot. Uh, and it wasn't clear why the robot suddenly like kind of loses its mind. And so, so we had to kind of build in a backstory there and invent some characters um, uh, to sort of explain like the, 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 what happened, you know, that led to this very key sort of story element. Um, but other than that, honestly, it's, it's, I think very faithful to the original story, which was, was part of my goal, you know, frankly. Interesting. So, so as we get towards the tail on this, I have a, I have a couple more questions. One of the ones I'm very curious about, since we kind of lead it to the beginning is you, you, this is your, you and your team's like first full blown video game in the like professional sense of like, I'm going to create a thing to fundamentally release it into the public for general viewing, all that. What? Right has been the the toughest thing through this process that you didn't expect to be like this absurdly tough thing. Interesting. Well, uh, you know, my team is in Ukraine, which, uh, which, uh, you know, I've done a lot of offshore work and, and generally that works well as long as you do good documentation and, and, and all that sort of thing. It's still tough. So we had, you know, time zone issues, language issues, and just not physically being in the same space, which, you know, it's the way of the world now. I get it. And, and, you know, I've certainly done a ton of work offshore, but there are some sort of in, innate inefficiencies that, that come with that. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of cost savings too. So that's the trade-off, right? So I would say in a perfect world, I would have had my team right, right there because, you know, you can look at something and you probably know this from the work you do. You can sit at someone's cubicle. You can look at what they're doing and say, no, no, change this. Or, Oh, that's really great. You know, when you add, you know, seven hour time differences, there's like a 24 hour turnaround every time you want to say, no, no, change that. So there's a lot of that. I think just sort of, again, it's sort of inherent in, in, in offshoring, which, uh, you know, is, is tricky. Um, I think the other thing that we found really challenging was uh, the uh, certification process for the Oculus Rift, which I have to tell you, I think the Oculus tools are phenomenal. They're a validator tool. They've got these wonderful, you know, software that allows you to to get all kinds of diagnostic reports and frame rates and this and that and, you know, really excellent tools. Like I would say their developer support is like the, probably the best I've ever seen, um, which is good uh, because the sort of um, – criteria for uh, frame rates uh, are really aggressive for low-end uh, GPUs. So uh, it is really tough to make something, you know, for me, right, I'm clearly a cinematic guy, and, and most of the really nice comments I get about the game is just how beautiful it looks and, and just how rich and wonderful it is, uh, which, you know, for me is a great compliment as a as a former filmmaker. But, boy, it is tough making that work on uh, – Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think these like low end cards. Uh, so 
there was a process where we had to continually take out lighting effects, take out particles, take out, you know, all those things to try to get it down, get it down, get it down and, uh, you know, remove geometry. And uh, so that was for us, I would say the biggest challenge to the point where we actually, because I wanted it to look as beautiful as, as it, as it did, we actually created sort of a, a, a quality switch in the game so that there's the default sort of quality, which is, you know, allows us to get certification in Oculus. And then there's a, you know, you click the switch to the enhanced version and, and it looks, you know, 10 times better, which I assume, you know, most people with VR rigs have pretty decent graphics cards uh, unless you bought, you know, first gen system and you've never upgraded. So my hope and assumption is most people are going to switch over to the enhanced graphics because it's just a much, much better experience, you know, just much nicer to look at. Oh, okay. Um, one more thing I'm curious about. So you said, obviously, you said the team's in the Ukraine. Is this something, so obviously, we saw it, there's, there's pluses and there's minuses to this, this, you being so far away from them and logistically. Is that something that next time, if you make another game, you want to do again? Or, you, or is it, like, it kind of like after the experience, you're like, no, this was an interesting experience, but I feel the disadvantages are too strong? You know, it's a really good question. Like I say, I've done tons of offshoring in India, Russia, you know, other places in, in my, my former career. And it is a reality of, of the new world. And, and truthfully, you know, with us in quarantine at this point, you know, whether a guy, you know, I'm in New York, right? So whether the guy is in Queens or Chicago or Florida, uh, we're all kind of, you know, working remotely anyway. Um, so look, I mean, there's huge advantages from a cost perspective and, you know, we're a small company, we're trying to keep our costs down. So being in New York, I mean, we pay a premium for developers here in New York and uh, some engineers are really in high demand. So, you know, it would be tough for me to produce something like this in New York, strictly from a cost perspective. Um, if I lived in another part of the country, maybe, but you know, I mean, there's great talent here, but they're just very expensive. Uh, I would say the artists that I worked with, um, just spectacular. Um, just truly like the concept artists. Uh, if, if any of your listeners love that kind of stuff, there's some of our concept art on our, our website, uh, which is lifehutchvr.com. I'm actually going to put up some more because I just really love the the sort of, you know, concept pre-visualization work we did. It's really stunning sort of, you know, film quality type work. So I thought the artists were excellent. The 3D artists were phenomenal. So there's incredible talent, uh, especially in that part of the country. Um, but yeah, it's tough. You know, again, the language barrier. I, I thought I would learn Russian during this project because I've worked with a lot of Russians over the years. I, I did not learn very much Russian or Ukrainian. So uh, that made it a little tough for me. So. Yeah, language, time zones, all those things. Tricky. Yeah, yeah. Even so, I obviously I just do a lot more in the scheduling, the interview side of them. Yeah, there are shockingly how many times you're like meetings at this time, and one of us didn't realize that like daylight savings time was a thing, or just logistically, you're like, oh god, half the time you're like, Can we just not have time zones. <laughs> yeah, we we ran into that many times. You know, like twice a year, I guess, basically, where suddenly half of us would be on the call at the wrong time, and. You know, we do all our, all, all our, you know, scrums and everything at usually like 7 a.m. because that's when it kind of works for everybody, right? So, yeah, it's tough. And only two of the guys on our team really spoke English well, so the producer and, and the PM. So, uh, you know, everything had to filter through them, which, which makes it tough. Um, but great guys, you know. And interestingly enough, I mean, you're a developer, so maybe you understand this. So, you know, I'm, I'm a halfway decent developer. I've been coding on and off, you know, my entire adult life. 
uh, when I go into Unity, which is, is what we built it in, it's coded in English. So I don't know how they do that. Uh, or I don't even know how that works. I guess I, I just don't understand how that works. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess they're not coding in Russian because I can open it up and I can read, you know, what they're doing. So oh, yeah, logistically, I, I guess it's one of those things that like, until you went into, you never think about something like that of like, even like keyboards are different or other things of like, oh, how do we translate this when we have two versions of Unity in different languages running? Like yeah, just yeah I have no idea. Yeah, I have no idea how that works. Uh, you know, it was pretty funny because I would, I wrote all the scripts and all the copy and all the dialogue and, you know, they would put it in, but most of them didn't know what they were looking at. I, you know, so I would inevitably have to do a lot of proofing of stuff, you know, just like when they send me Russian, uh, I don't know what I'm looking at either. Right. So, um, so those are interesting challenges, but again, been doing that for a lot of years. Um, so that's fine. Um, and you know, the good news is there's incredible talent all over the world. And uh, I really enjoy working with people all over the world because they get some really interesting perspectives. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a worthwhile process as long as you do it properly, I would say. Nice. So, so now, now I have to ask the the tough question. It's kind of like it's kind of like when you have like you have to choose your favorite child question. Um, <laughs> after after working now in multiple entertainment meetings over mediums over the years, what on a fundamental guttural level is like your favorite or like like if you only had to work in one, which would you work in? Uh, let's see. From a pure satisfaction standpoint, as an artist, I you know I really like this world. I mean, you know. Life Hutch is hopefully the first of, of many projects. And maybe this is just because of who I am, but, you know, again, as a filmmaker, as a artist, as a 3d guy, uh, as a pseudo coder, um, I, I love the potential for what we can create, um, in VR in particular, and, and in general, kind of the video game space, because, it's so rich now. Again, you know, I, I've been playing games. I mean, my first computer, real gaming computer, was an Amiga, which a lot of the guys listening to podcasts may not even know, but that was a, an amazing machine in its day. But you know, it's uh, to see how good things look and sound, uh, and how robust the, the game engines are now, and just the quality of the assets. Um, it's kind of a, a perfect storm of opportunities for people to make really great stuff without spending piles of money. Um, it's just, I mean, the, the fact that the game engines are so good and they're basically free, uh, if you keep it under a certain, I think $250,000 or something. Um, I mean, that's just an incredible resource. So, you know, I, I love the space. I think it's amazing what you can do. The tools are there. Um, I struggle a little with VR because just the installed base isn't that big. So, you know, if I were a smart businessman, I would probably not choose VR because you're limited by the number of headsets out there. You know, I, I post about the game and all my friends in the entertainment industry are like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I wish I had a VR rig. Right. And so that's that's part of the reason we made a desktop version, uh, because I wanted to be able to demo it. And uh, also, I know a lot of people won't be able to see it. It's way better in VR. So I, I hope that people get VR rigs. But again, if you're a straight up businessman. VR is not going to be your number one choice. You know, you're going to develop for mobile because there's however many hundreds of millions of mobile phones out there. For me, that wouldn't be as interesting. So so I'm hoping VR gets wider adoption. I'm hoping some of the really great headsets like the Quest, I think, is a really great headset. 
um, especially with the link cable. So you can kind of have the best of both worlds in terms of, you know, fidelity of graphics, but also portability and convenience. Uh, so I guess I just read the, the Quest 2, I think, is on the roadmap to come out. So, you know, that would be the question, right? Is VR going to become common enough, widely distributed enough that, that guys like us can can really justify the, the cost of, of making some of these games, you know? And that, that um, is that is the, I think, the age-old, I don't know if problem, it's, it's interesting because VR is growing in the sense, but it's so much growing more in the B2B side or the simulation side where, where it totally is the, the VR as a consumer product, I think is getting there, but I think that cost barrier is still so high for the bulk of people that it's very interesting to watch. Yeah, $1,000 is a lot of money for people to, to invest in, in some of this technology. And you're right, you know, the sort of enterprise side, it's like, you know, huge, right? Just like AR and VR, those, that's huge because they have tons of money, they can afford it. But that's a lot of money for a consumer, and you've got to give them a really compelling experience. So, you know, which is, again, why Alex came out with the Valve Index, right? I mean, ultimately, they could never have justified the expense of that game, which is just stunning unless it was basically as a marketing expense for that headset, right? So so um, the question is, when do we get to that point where there's enough headsets out there that it starts to bring in the developers and, and bring in, you know, unfortunately the money, which is required in order to, you know, give guys like us, you know, what we need to continue going on the, on this business. Yeah. Well, well, Patrick, I want to say thank you again for sitting down and talking to me during this, this fun Thursday morning during the pandemic outside. Um, so just to clarify, people, the game is Life Hutch VR. It is LifeHutchVR.com. Is that right? Is there any other place I'm missing? That is right. It's also on Steam, and it's on the Vive Port Store, and hopefully coming soon to the Oculus Store. Perfect. Well, again, Patrick, thanks for sitting down with me, and enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another one of these fun interview special episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike. Today I have with me a special guest who's working on, I'd say post-apocalyptic game, but I guess right now we'll call it the modern times, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, can you, sir, please tell us your name and the game that you're here to talk about? Uh, hello, my name is Anton, and uh, I'm working uh, on the game Atom RPG. Perfect, yeah. So Atom RPG immediately, um, I think it is everything you guys talk about too, when you go in this game... It feels like, you know, you guys were giant fans of, like, the original Fallout and Wasteland titles. I I'm curious, was that just, like, going into it where you just, like, I miss this type of game? Or kind of, like, where did this initial, like, push for, like, going back to this very 90s nostalgia kind of title go from? Uh, well, the, the initial idea of creating a game like that, I mean, like, like Atom RPG is something similar to Essex Fallout, like Fallout 1, Fallout 2. Uh, the, the initial idea was in 2008, and uh, it was our programmer, Dmitry. Um, he was thinking, he was fiddling with this idea. He was thinking, man, yeah, maybe I should do something like that. So uh, I think he started creating an uh, engine, like an in-house engine for, for, for this game. But uh, since he was in high school <laughs> at the moment, uh, it didn't really go that far. Uh, so no time passed. He started working in actually working in gaming industry. And uh, in 2015, just in his spare time, he decided to make a, a like technical demo for Atom again, like to create this idea of his. Just put it out on the internet and uh, 
you know, just people started flocking in who were interested in making such a game, like a classic RPG. Basically, not not specifically like specifically Fallout, like even though, of course, uh, Adam is a very Fallout-like game, but just you know, people who like classical RPGs, and by classical, I mean like classical Western, like Baldur's Gate, Fallout, uh, Island, uh, I don't know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, a lot of them. So, uh, yeah, and what, I was one of those people, and till 2017, we uh, worked uh, on the game in our, our time. And in 2017, we started a Kickstarter campaign, and uh, oh, after that, came a, came a company, let's say a team, <laughs> official team. That's interesting, I think, immediately how long the game's development for. Like, that's, that's an immediate thing of, like, wow, that's, that's the idea of floating around for that long. So I'm curious then, like, because you said originally you weren't part of the original founding that way. How did you get on the project? That starts from there, kind of. Obviously, I think if people kind of hear, too, you guys aren't from, like, like obviously I'm from, like, America and those kind of loud audiences, but you guys are definitely not from America. You guys are from, like, Eastern Europe and stuff, too. So I'm very curious, like, how this all came to be in that way. Uh, basically, my story is very is, story is 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 very simple. I was just uh, I don't know. I was just sitting on the internet doing nothing, wasting time. And I just uh, yes, accident. I just found a video of Adam. Uh, somebody somebody found this um, this this technical demo that Mitra made, played it, and it was a very small video. Like I don't know, like three hundred views or and I, I really I can't tell you right now how I found it. So, uh, and I watched it and I was like, mm, this looks cool. I mean, I don't know, this looks cool. So I started searching. I found out the website where, like, uh, called like game developer website uh, where he was sitting. I just registered there and I wrote, like, um, maybe you need a writer or something, you know, write, writing dialogues, quests, and stuff like that for the game. And he was like, yeah, sure, cool. Oh, so that's how I joined the team. 2015. Like, obviously, these teams come together a lot of times. You hear these stories of, like, teams just found each other and just now made a game. I've always found it interesting when those teams, like, the idea actually works because a lot of times you get these, like, internet teams of these scattered things, also, the game just kind of stops one day or, like, it never happens. So it's always fascinating when, like, the game actually goes through development and happens. Yeah. Well, since, I mean, like I said, like, the idea was in 2018. So, I uh, 2008. So, you know, like people who were standing behind were very determined, and people who came, stayed in the company were also like very determined. I guess very determined people. Yeah. Again, like if you, as I said, like we worked on the game, in 2017. I would even say like till the end of 2017, even after the Kickstarter campaign, uh, most of the team worked on the game in their still in their free time, in their spare time. So it's like. Oh, you, you, you're doing your job, you're doing something, and then after that, you go home and you <laughs> you sit under before your computer and start just developing Atom. So, but, you know, that was something we all choose to do. That's interesting. So let's, let's jump into Atom, and it's, and it's obviously, I'd, I'd call it a sequel, whatever you want to call it, Turnigrad, a little more of... <laughs> I'm So, obviously, the, one of the big things with the Fallout games on a fundamental level is they're very... American centric because where they were made, like it's fifties Americana, like all that. Your games are not that. Your games are set in 
Eastern Europe, specifically in the Soviet Union. So I'm very curious, like, when you guys are going through that cycle of it, what what are the pieces you pull from that idea of, like, how, how do you make it very Soviet Union? Again, it's probably, America doesn't understand that, but, like, what do you guys are, like, the nostalgic part of that kind of you're pulling from? That's 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 actually a hard question, right? Uh, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily trying to make it nostalgic or something like that. It's it's just, I mean, I guess it's it's nostalgic, just nostalgic to a certain point. Basically, like we're just. It's hard to say. Like I don't know. Uh, I mean, we, we all grew up in, uh, and we're all born and grew up in Eastern Europe. Some uh, some of guys in the team were even uh, grow, grow up in Soviet Union still. So everybody, everybody kind of, even even after the Soviet Union collapsed, everybody kind of had uh, and have, like, understanding how, how it looks, how it operated. But so we kind of based, uh, I guess, the game world on, on that. Like, it's it's not specifically necessarily Soviet Union. It's more like a nine, like, Scientist-based fantasy: What Soviet Union could have looked like if it's uh, if a nuclear war would happen? Um, so, yeah, like that. So that I, 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 maybe nostalgia was the right term. I just find it very interesting again because it's the like obviously like when I picture the idea of like what we define as followed in America, like it's a very image of like oh I understand like where these images came from. That's always very interesting watching like you guys kind of flip it on your head in that sense of like. Of like watching that, of like, oh, this is kind of like where where the opposite end of the world kind of viewed their version of the same similar time period of what would happen, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So then let's 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 jump then. I would say to some of the mechanics, and I would say what is what is defined a lot of times with these games. Kind of looking back at them now, is they like people love them at the time, but they're very hard to get into. So I'm curious, kind of from a usability point of view, kind of like. What you guys focused on to make sure that like the modern gamer still found something in these games? Uh, actually, when we first started developing uh, Atom, uh, the idea was uh, to make it—I <laughs> would say—to make it very unfriendly <laughs> to the general general player. Uh, like I think we even even we even knew that oh, like you could do some some some. In UI, something better, but we were like, nah, nah, we're gonna do it the old way. Like it should be, you know, shoot right in the face how hard it is, how hardcore. But then when we go, uh, when we got on uh, Steam, we started working actually, actually working with people. And even before that, where we started like uh, letting out first like demos, uh, free demos of the game, the internet, uh, you know, we like we start working with the people we. Saw how people reacted to certain things, and we're like, okay, maybe that was a dumb idea. Maybe we should kind of make it a little bit more user friendly. Um, but actually, still, when we, I think, when we released Adam uh, as a well, as a complete game in uh, 2000, in the end of 2018, uh, it was still kind of wonky at times. So, and people were giving their feedback. Oh, and uh, we actually changed the game in updates after that. Uh, well, didn't change the game all that much. We changed moments, some like made it more user friendly because uh, our players were giving us feedback how to do it better, how they see uh, it should be done. But we just kind of listened to them and made it made it like that. 
no, like right now with Trudograd, we, I think, I think, I hope, made it even more user-friendly. But again, it's, it's an ongoing process. So probably when we release Trudograd, it will be more, 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 I don't know, less hardcore, I guess. It, it, at least it less hardcore when I'm, when I'm talking about UI and stuff like that. I would I would argue from what I've played of you you guys are kind enough to give me some codes. Um, the game still has the difficulty. Like it's not like I I feel like I feel like you guys still nailed it. The like this isn't inherently blindly easy. And I and so I'm very curious. Then kind of I assume you guys have watched the success in the recent years of more difficult stuff either in the strategy genres or in I obviously like you have the Souls ideas of like no difficulty can work. It's just a matter of how you portray the difficulty. Uh yeah, but uh, this. It was always like, in, at least in Eastern Europe, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to generalize and say like, oh, everybody, everywhere in Eastern Europe, we do it like that. <laughs> you know, like, difficult games are actually very respected. I don't know why, like, super, it, if, it's, if it's more difficult, it's better. Like, if it's just, you know, like, a complete ball buster, great, <laughs> it, it, it will go. So, I don't know, so it's, it's always like, like, we knew that people, uh, because, of course, like, the start we were creating it, I guess, uh, when we were just, you know, doing it from our bedrooms. Uh, we we're creating it for just people on the forum that we were sitting, people on our, uh, like, group on our social media, just uh, uh, talking with those people when we still didn't have Steam and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, and we knew that what those people wanted, and we knew what we wanted from a game, so we wanted it to be quite hard. So, uh, there wasn't any like a special idea behind it. It was just natural, I guess. <laughs> I'm curious, actually, now that we talk about because obviously you guys are culture European and you define it more like even mechanically or like that kind of stuff of it. Is your audience that you've seen sales and response to it? Has it been very heavily in Europe? Have you seen more of a global response to the game? Uh, it's it's actually yeah quite global. Uh, we have a lot of players from uh, USA, from America. Uh, we also have a lot of players uh, actually from Asia, and uh, since we have a Chinese translation of the game, that of course helps a lot. That, uh, but uh, yeah, interestingly enough, yeah, we have a lot of <laughs> more global audience. I guess uh, at the start was more like it was probably more Eastern European based, but uh, eventually, yeah, it's... I can't even say. Uh, from what country there are more players? Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, it's all around the world. Yeah. Interesting. So, as you guys have seen in global sales, I'm curious: Have you guys had felt a need to adjust the game at all to be more akin to a global audience? Or are you very much like, no, this is what we're making. I don't care where it sells. This is kind of like our general vision of the game. Depends. I mean, uh, in case of translation, uh, we actually work. Uh, speak about if we talk about English translation, we're working with um, a great writer Scott Ham, who also worked on a lot of other RPGs. So, uh, kind of helping us to edit uh, the translation, make it better, make it more, I guess, understandable for for uh, not only American audience but like audience from all around the world. Because of course, like in the original, the game originally is written in Russian, and uh, there's a lot of yes, jokes and uh, references and stuff like that that I think uh, probably 
people from most countries wouldn't understand. So we kind of changed it a little bit for the English version. So, but I think I think it's just a respectable thing to do to the players. But other than that, I don't really know what we can change in the game <laughs> uh, to to appeal for a more general audience. Like I don't know. So now, now I'm curious. Now that we've kind of broadly talked about you guys in this too. Let's let's jump into. So as we're talking, I want to pronounce this correctly. I hope Trudograd. Is that how I would say it? Trudograd. Trudograd. Okay. Trudograd. Trudograd. Oh, doesn't matter. <laughs> so it it just launched in early access like two days from us recording this. I'm so you guys are chucking this sucker in early access. I'm curious, kind of, from your point of view, what is the point of early access in a content-heavy game like this, where that's usually the type of games I feel like are the ones that you see either do really well in early access or fall on their face just because it's very content-heavy as people go through it their motivation to like do it again and again becomes harder and harder. Basically our idea we just put a lot of say like we put a lot of different ways how you can discern situation. Uh, do uh, do certain quests, uh, a lot of secrets and a lot of stuff like that because it's it was like with Adam. Like Adam was in early access what? I would uh, probably probably year maybe even more than a year uh it was in a, in it was in uh, early access and still uh we had and we had and we have a lot of players who were who bought it in early access right when we just released it there and who actually still are with us who are still you know like uh who, who now bought Rudograd and they're writing their comments there and uh you know writing to us they maybe found some bug or something like that so i don't know i guess people just find a lot of pleasure in in, in um, say that like dissecting those games like looking for different ways looking for different approaches to situations and we we like it ourselves we like to add such things in the game so maybe maybe that's the ticket I don't know really <laughs> so, so so early access then to you guys you'd say is much more of a would you say then you use it much more for a balancing point of view, or to like figure out what content you have to add next? Uh, it's a uh, balancing and uh, content, of course, uh, because right now we watched uh, some responses at the moment, and I already started. I'm already starting to think like, okay, okay, now maybe we need to change the strategy for the next update. Maybe we need to, you know, add more. For example, like more battle quests or something like that. Quests where we need to defeat someone. But that's just uh, at the moment. Like maybe maybe it will change when uh, more feedback will come. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And uh, uh, balancing, absolutely, yes. We already, like even in the first patches, we already made changes to, to the balance. Just just because people like pointed out that we, are <laughs> we did something wrong there. So it's very important, I think. Interesting. So, how would you guys then, in a lot of ways, because I'd say in early access is always interesting, because like when we define from early access to a complete game, I feel like it's very different game to game. What are you guys looking for to be like, okay, now the game is quote unquote done and we're willing to release it to out of early access? Uh, well, basically, the game should be finishable, it should be complete from A to B, and, uh, and, 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 and should have all the. We'll have. Uh, you could say, of course, it can change when you 
process of development, we will we, we, like, have like a roadmap in our heads, like what we want to achieve, what we want to put in the game. So when we know that it's ready, then we then we will release the game. So right now we're thinking it's probably will be possible to completely release the game in the late autumn, maybe start of the winter, worst case scenario. Uh, but it's possible. Uh, and we kind of at the moment, we're pretty sure that we will do everything that we want to put in the game uh, those dates. But who knows? We'll see. If, 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 if for some reason, maybe there will be something new that we want to put in there or, or see that there's no time, maybe then we'll make uh, I'm starting to rumble here. <laughs> uh, maybe there will take more time to develop. But uh, I'm not, I, I don't know if it's going to happen. So. So, so, I have a couple, as we get to the tail end here, a couple more fun questions for you, um, as you have worked on these games for a while now, as we'll say. Uh, my first one is immediately either in, either in the most recent game or the one before it, what is your failed, favorite, most insane bug you've seen and had to have squished in the game? Actually, yeah, that's uh, uh, the cigarette bug. Uh, the cigarette bug, and we actually didn't squish it <laughs> in the first item. Uh, so, uh, what, what, what? I'll explain what it is. Maybe you find it out. Maybe you read about it, but I'll tell it. I'll tell it. So, the idea you can take uh, like uh, stuff, like objects in your hands in the game. So, and uh, you can use it on other characters or on uh, some objects, other objects on the game world. For example, you can take a bottle of vodka or something like that, and you can give it to an NPC, and NPC will actually drink it and say, like, oh, yeah, thank you, that's very nice of you. And um, uh, so, and you can basically, uh, any such items that you can use, you can use on other characters. Now, the thing is, we have item cigarette. Now, this item uh, gives you a bonus to your crafting. But it uh, takes one health from you. But you can still give it... <laughs> give this item to other characters basically yes 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 exactly so basically you can kill everyone in the game with this that absolutely everyone uh so we we, we found out about it and we're like well <laughs> well you know can you do about it sure let's keep it in <laughs> so we didn't squish it <laughs> we found it to be very amusing because it's not a very easy way to uh, still it's not a very easy way to cheese the game because you know like you take only one hit point most characters have uh, much more than that but still you know I could I could just imagine the amount of like it reminds me of like in like Fallout games you go like put mines in people's pockets and stuff it's the same idea of you just go hold on one second and we're just gonna walk away now <laughs> So, the next the next question I had for you, because obviously you're talking about you 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 there there are obviously very obvious inspirations to this games. So if I had to blind, if you had to blindly pick one that you get to dream work on, would you work on more of a wasteland game or more of a Fallout game? I have two choices, like Fallout or Wasteland. Oh, uh, well, we're kind of working on a more Fallout game right now, so I, I guess just just to make it interesting for myself, I would probably pick a more wasteland type of game next. Interesting. Okay, and and then and then 
finally I've got to obviously I've got to obviously ask you after after you've gone through this environment, you've got to enjoy a lot of making this game. What after wouldn't this... say wouldn't say we had to endure a lot. I mean, it's like we ha- we have fun doing it. Of course, it's not always fun, but for the most part, it's it's you know we enjoy ourselves. Let me phrase you. When I say game development and daring, it is the end product is really fun. There are moments in the in between though that everyone always agrees they want to go kill someone because it's game development. <laughs> what is what sure, has been sure. your favorite memory or moment, kind of going through the experience of making these games, kind of? Ooh, I think maybe the most memorable, I guess, moment was and uh, we were on our Kickstarter campaign. And it's going kind of like kind of meh <laughs> at first. Uh, then a big YouTuber uh, actually made a video about us, and that was the first video about Atom. Like, no, no, not the first video, but first, like, first big video about Atom. And for me, that was very like I was like, oh, that's so cool. I mean, you know, like a lot of you always watched kind of as a as an audience. You watch a video about some game somebody made, some you know maybe a let's player plays plays it, and you're like, yeah, that's cool. But uh, when you're like actually one of those who uh, made this game it's it's you know it was very like very cool feeling very interesting i was reading the comments people were writing like oh it's a great game i was like oh thank you some people write where is this or something bad i was like well you know okay let's let's go to the next comment <laughs> but still it was an interesting experience you know uh so yeah I, that's just out of my head, like, you know, something that I remember, you know, like this, this, uh, like, explosion of different opinions and stuff like that it was very interesting. Uh, if you think about it, there's probably been a lot more of such moments. Milestones. Perfect. Well, well, I want to thank you for sitting down with me to talk about the game. Can you tell everyone how they find and buy these fun games? Excuse me? Could you could you tell everyone now how how would we wanted to buy Adam? Where would we buy it? How do we buy it? All that fun stuff. Oh uh, yeah, so uh, you can find Adam on uh, as well as uh, through the Grat on Steam and on the good old games gog.com, of course. So th- that's uh, basically two two websites where you can buy both Adam and True the Grat. All well, True the Grat is early access. I say just buy Adam. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So yeah, and then it's. AdamRPG.com, I believe, is the website. Yeah, but it's more like, uh, you know, it's like we are. This is Adam RPG, but there's there's not a lot of information about about it. We're maybe maybe we're, we're going to make this website a bit more robust in the future, but at the moment it's uh, bare bones, I guess. And thanks for sitting down and talking about the game, and I look forward to see how. Your brand new game does, and and the and the stories of it being an early access after more than a few days of of the chaos that, as we said, <laughs> you, you said your early chaos of dealing with it on launch has been. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. This podcast was a product of the SWW Show. You can find more at the SWWShow.com or Facebook.com/slash the SWW Store or Twitter.com/slash SWW. You can find out more about Mike at Mikey underscore Maroney on Twitter and more about AJ at 
Losi Boar on Twitter. Remember, new episodes come out twice a month, one focusing on the new entertainment news and one focusing on movie club, so new and an old movie. You can find out more again at the SWWshow.com and you can find the show on podcast services around the globe.